please turn in your Bibles to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. We have said that we want to hear the voice of the Lord Jesus in every line of Scripture, and we want to know more of His Holy Spirit's work in us. And everything that we read now in Revelation 3, 1 through 6, are the words of Jesus Christ. So we should pay careful attention to these, the words of Jesus. Revelation chapter 3, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church in Sardis write, He who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars says this, I know your deeds, that you have a name, that you are alive, but you are dead. Wake up and strengthen the, thing, the things that remain, which are about were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief. And you will not know at what hour I will come to you. But you have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments, and they will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. He who overcomes will thus be clothed in white garments, and I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Let's ask the Lord's blessing upon his word. Lord, we have sung sincerely that we want to know more about our Savior. That we want to understand the principles upon which his kingdom increases. The way in which he will bless his people and the way in which he will return again to receive us to himself. And so we pray that as we have often prayed in this place, you will open our ears and open our hearts and speak your word to our souls. Help us, our Father, to see in the mirror of the word what you would have us to see and to feel and to know. Hear our prayer in your own blessed and perfect name. Amen. Amen. The Apostle Paul, writing to the Christians in Galatia, wrote these words. If anyone thinks he is something, when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Those are words that are appropriate to the church in Sardis. Self-deception is a dangerous and a sad thing. And one of the ways in which people are deceived and ruined is by their own reputation. This is one of the things that ruined many in the church of Sardis, as we will see this evening. So that's an appropriate saying as an introduction to the letter to the church in Sardis. If anyone thinks he is something, when he has nothing, he deceives himself. My outline 
for verses 1 through 6 is very similar to the outlines I have given for the previous letters that we have considered in the book of Revelation so far. Uh, very similar. First of all, the church, the city Sardis. The city Sardis. Secondly, Christ's self-description. Thirdly, his emergency evaluation. Fourthly, his correction for Sardis. Fifthly, his gracious recognition. Sixthly, his motivation to persevere. And finally, his call to attention. Seven points. They None of the points will be long, so you need not be concerned about that. But these are the elements of the letter which Christ dictates the Apostle John for the church in Sardis. So, let us consider, first of all, and very briefly, the city of Sardis, because that is the city where the church is that the Lord Jesus Christ addresses to the angel, that is the messenger of the church in Sardis, right? Sardis was in part of that circular route from Ephesus and almost back again to, uh, to Ephesus that would be the root of delivery for the letters written by John in Patmos. Sardis was 50 miles due east of Smyrna. So if you had started down in Ephesus and you had traveled up to Smyrna and then around down, you would end up 50 miles uh, due east of Smyrna. Uh, uh, Sardis was a city with a mixed history. All of these cities in the, in the book of Revelation, these seven cities, had something to make them proud. They were bragging rights to all the cities. And um, this particular city was hard to conquer. Most of the city could not be approached by, it, by enemy armies except by very steep natural walls. Now, this is the kind of thing you don't see in New Jersey. Uh, maybe there's one place I'm aware of that has these kinds of steep walls, and that's the Palisades. If you've ever been over to uh, Englewood Cliffs, appropriately named, there are steep, straight-up walls, by the way, which George Washington had the cannons drag up the cliffs to the top so that he could defeat the British. It was, a, it was an amazing feat of endurance. But this was, the, this was the situation of Corinth. Most of the approaches to Corinth, especially on the north, you couldn't approach, you couldn't approach Sardis to conquer it except by extremely steep walls. But there was one little place in the south of Sardis where there was, it was possible with uh, skilled mountain climbers to climb up and attack Sardis. Most of the people were not at all concerned about their defense. He said, we're secure, we're fine. No one's gonna come and conquer us. Actually, twice. In the century before this letter was written, twice Sardis was conquered by enemy armies because of the inattention of the people of Sardis. The people were not aware of their danger. They were not awake to their danger. They awakened when it was too late. And finally, about 60 years before this letter was written in the year 17 AD, there was an 
unexpected earthquake that destroyed the city. And it was eventually rebuilt by Tiberius Caesar. As a city, the people had many times been not alert to their dangers. This was a dangerous feature of the history and mentality of Sardis. That's the city Sardis. Secondly, let's consider Christ's self-description. Christ profiles himself as he does to each of his churches. He profiles himself in this language. Notice in the middle of verse 1, he who has the seven spirits of God and the seven stars. He, and then comes all of the things that Jesus wants to say to the church at Sardis. He has the seven stars and he has the seven spirits of God. And this profile of our Lord, you see, has two sevens in it. And one of those sevens is literal. And one of those sevens is figurative. Isn't that interesting? There's a literal use of the number seven and a figurative use of the number seven. There were seven churches addressed by Jesus. And at the end of chapter one, Jesus says what he means by stars. There are seven stars in his hand, and those stars are the seven churches. So when he says he has the seven stars, he, he owns the seven churches. This is a literal use of the number seven in a book, which has many figurative uses of numbers. There were seven churches. Christ owns them. He holds them. He is the sovereign Lord of the seven churches, and their future rests on his will and his grace. And if we want to know more about Jesus, one thing we need to know is that Jesus owns us. He owns his church. He holds his church. He runs his church. That's the first seven. The second seven in the profile of Christ, actually it's the first one. I took the second one first, and I'm taking the first one second. Because that's the harder one, right? That's the harder one. The, the first seven is the seven spirits of God. This looks back to chapter 1 and verse 4. Uh, as you see, the, the uh, opening words of address, grace to you and peace from him who was and who, who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne. That's the first reference. There are several references to the seven spirits of God. It looks forward to chapter 5 and verse 6 as well. That's another place where we have a description, more information about the seven spirits of God. And I read it to you. I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And so when he sees the Lord Jesus Christ again in this figurative description of a lamb slain, he has seven uh, horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God. So again, in Revelation chapter 3, Jesus has the seven spirits, and in the figurative picture of him, he has the seven spirits of God. Now the number is figurative. You don't need to be a mighty studied theologian to understand that. 
Because what the rest of the Bible teaches is that there is only one Holy Spirit. There are not seven Holy Spirits. The God whom we worship is one God in three persons, not one God in nine persons. One God in three persons, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there's really one Holy Spirit. The number seven here is figurative and indicates the operations of the Holy Spirit in the church and in the world. Remember what the set in 5 6, chapter 5, verse 6, the Holy Spirit is sent out into all the world. This is the operation of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is not limited to one operation, He has diverse operations, and all of those are related to the person of our Lord Jesus Christ. So He is the one who has the seven spirits of God. And what the people in Sardis are to understand is that Christ is able to give all the grace needed to bless the churches. He has all the grace needed. He speaks to him, he speaks to them and he reminds them, I have the seven spirits of God. Any grace you need, any operation of the spirit which is to come to you, comes to you through me, the Lord Jesus Christ. Whatever they need to overcome, and whatever they need to persevere in, the Lord Jesus Christ is able to supply them. And because Christ has the Spirit, you will never have the Spirit apart from the Lord Jesus Christ. One of my pastors, Pastor Huffmeyer, the man who was in the Philippines for so many years, he preached a sermon, a number of sermons recently, on the fruit of the Spirit in Galatians 6. He says, you need the fruit of the Spirit. You, you need the Spirit to have the fruits. And you need to have Christ to have the Spirit. And this is the same truth which Jesus is teaching. You will not possess the Spirit of Christ except by, the, by faith, saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so, the people of Sardis need to look to the Lord Jesus Christ in confidence that he is able to supply their need. They cannot manufacture their own spirituality. And don't you know this, dear Christians? Don't you know this? I can't make my own godliness. I can't make my own holiness. I cannot build by my own personal works some foundation for blessing. It all depends on the Lord Jesus. That's what Jesus is teaching. It comes from him. So we have the city Sardis. Secondly, Christ's self-description. Third thing, still in verse 1. The third thing is his emergency evaluation. It's an emergency. It's a dire situation. The Lord Jesus Christ speaks seriously, urgently to the people of God in Sardis at the end of verse 1. I read it again. Jesus says this, I know your deeds. I know about you. I know your works. That you have a name, that you are alive, and you are dead. That's what Jesus says to the church in Sardis. It's a tragic condition. It's a very dangerous condition. You might contract a disease which spreads quickly with almost no symptoms. 
the church, this church, Sardis, has a reputation. This is their disease. They have a reputation, and it is not true. Their reputation does not correspond to the reality of their spiritual life. Jesus says you have a name. You have a reputation that you are alive. That's what the other churches say. That's what other people say. They look at Sardis and say, oh, look, here's a real church. Here are godly people. Here are people full of God's spirit. They're wrong, but that's the reputation, you see. They're wrong. And Jesus tells us what he sees wrong in Sardis. The works that Jesus says. He says, I see your works. So I know what you're doing. I know your conduct. I know your efforts. And Jesus says that they are dead works. I know your works, that you have a name, that you are alive, and you are dead. Dead works. Now, what can dead works do? Dead works can do nothing. Absolutely nothing. They have no effectiveness. Dead works. It's like imagine imagine you have a you have a dog you've been trying to teach some tricks, and your dog dies. And you say, Fida, fetch. Go fetch. What can Fida do? He can't do anything. If he just died, he might have a twitch in one of his legs, but he can't go fetch the newspaper. He can't do anything. These people have works that are dead works. They have no effectiveness. They effectively are no works. Dead works are no works. The thing that makes them vulnerable in Sardis to having dead works, despite their reputation, is their reputation. The problem with a reputation is that a reputation need not be accurate. You can, you can have a reputation I play chess. I play chess with my wife mostly. Sometimes she beats me. Very clever. And sometimes I beat her. Uh, I have no good, I don't have a ranking, so I have no good reputation in chess. But if I had a reputation, if I had a ranking, if I were a 2200 chess player, that would be almost a, a grandmaster. Uh, that would be a great reputation, but you know, if I lose games constantly, what does it matter what my rating is, what my reputation is? The reputation means nothing. The problem with a reputation is it can make someone confident, but it hides the degrading disease which they would not easily detect. So they have around them people who are saying, ah, oh, that church is such a wonderful church, such fine Christian people. So alive, so full of works, all lies, all dead, no life. And this is what Jesus tells them. And I want you to think about this for a moment. We just sang that song, more about Jesus would I know. What kind of savior is my savior? Yes, he died on the cross for my sins. He rose from the dead for my justification. He offers eternal life to me. He is a truth-telling Savior. He is an honest Savior. Jesus won't lie to you, and Jesus won't say nice things just to cheer you up. 
Here he tells the people at Sardis the one thing they need most to know. You have a reputation. It's deceptive. It's dangerous. It's undermining you. You're dead. Well, death is upon Sardis. As a matter of fact, Jesus tells the people at Sardis, it's really close. It's really close. You go to a doctor for, say, some form of cancer, and the doctor's going to tell you what stage that cancer is in. Hopefully, if you have cancer, you, you get it in the early stages, and they say, oh, thank God you came in for this test because you have stage one. When you get stage four pancreatic cancer, you've just about had it. So the Lord Jesus tells them faithfully, you have a disease, you are dead, and it's really close, really close. You see how, that, how he puts that in verse 2? Wake up and strengthen the things that remain, which were about to die. That's what I mean when Jesus says, this disease is really close. There's no commendation for this church. There's no commendation for this church as a whole. Um, because of this situation. This death is a death. What does it do? Deaths, death, <laughs> death slows you down. Death saps you of life. I, I had, speaking of chess, there was a picture I had of a dead horse lying by a chessboard and the caption read beating a dead horse well anybody can beat a dead horse because the horse can't do anything death saps life and Jesus says the death is almost done its work at first glance when you read these verses and I, I, I when I read these letters and I, I prepare these sermons I read them several times because I'm, I realize my first impression of the letter is generally not the most accurate one. The first glance, it looks like there's no particular sin. Jesus says you're dead. He says your works are incomplete. He doesn't accuse them of fornication. He doesn't accuse them of idolatry. He accuses them of deadness. Now this, this description that the Lord has for them has a valuable advantage. You might not think so, but it, do, it does. When Jesus doesn't specify the sin in so many words, when he doesn't spell it out for them, it has an advantage. Because one of the problems of this church is they're not alert. They're asleep. And their condition requires extraordinary attention. And this is what they haven't done. They haven't paid attention. That's why they're dead. That's why deadness has almost done its work. There is a hint uh, in verse 4 of trouble some of the trouble, notice in verse 4, we haven't gotten there yet, we're going to get there. there. You have a few who have not soiled their garments. They say that's a figure of speech of some sin. There are some people who are walking in the way they ought to walk, 
and they have not soiled their garments. That means that the people who are dead have soiled their garments. There is sin. Jesus just doesn't spell it out entirely. This, this description could fit many different sins. The commentators have various opinions about the sins. It must have included, and this is, this is a sin you won't recognize quite so quickly, self-satisfaction, laziness that lulled them to sleep. That's why there's no commendation. There's nothing to commend. And that in itself is what should not be true of any people of God. It should never be true of us that there's uh, nothing to commend. Someone once said, when you think about the things you should do, don't ask the question, what's wrong with them? Ask the question, what's right about them? See? And Jesus says, I have nothing right to say about you. Nothing good to say about you. So, we've looked at the city Sardis. We've looked at Christ's self-description. And now his emergency evaluation. Let's look now at his correction, his faithful correction in verses 2 and 3. His faithful correction. Wake up and strengthen the things which remain, which were about to die, for I have not found your deeds completed in the sight of my God. So remember what you have received and heard, and keep it, and repent. Therefore, if you do not wake up, I will come like a thief, and you will not know at what hour I will come to you. Here's his correction to the church at Sardis. Our Lord faithfully points out their sinful conduct. You know what their sinful conduct is? It's no conduct. Their sinful conduct is no conduct. Their lack of conduct. His point is that there were some works which they were involved in, but they were very few and very weak. That's what Jesus is saying. The things that remain are about to die, says Jesus. His point is, again, that there were some works which they were involved in, but they were very few and very weak. And this is the result of a particular spiritual disease. Should not be hard for us to recognize what it is. When pride awakens in the soul and rules the soul, Look what everybody says about us. We're a wonderful group of people. Pride. Self-satisfaction. Worldliness. Look at all we have. When these things take hold, any deeds which remain, and Jesus says there are deeds that remain, are very, very weak. They will be very ineffective. Various excuses why the work cannot be diligently done will appear reasonable to the soul. We're rich. We have good deeds. We have a reputation. Everybody knows how wonderful we are. So we don't have to work so hard. You know what? We're doing pretty well. We don't have to try very hard. And there are excuses why the work cannot be diligently done. And they believe it. 
these works are about to die. And so Jesus tells them, your works are incomplete. The Lord makes clear their that their problem is not a lack of information. You can understand that there are churches that, that, that don't know what God wants them to do. Poor teaching, poor leadership, so they don't know what they're supposed to be doing. They, they, have, they haven't a clue. So it's easy for someone who doesn't have good teaching not to know what they should be doing that they're not doing. You say that. Okay? Jesus says, you don't, you don't need more information. That's what he says in verse 3, right? So remember what you have received and heard and keep it. They know. They should be doing certain things. They know already that these are duties. They're not doing them. And the problem is not that these believers don't have any spiritual gifts. They have knowledge. They have gifts. If they didn't have gifts, the Lord would not expect them to be doing something for which he has never equipped them. But they do have gifts. And they're not using their gifts. They have knowledge, they have gifts. So the Lord tells them what they need to do. Here's what the Lord tells them they need to do. Here's the church at Sardis. What do you do if you're a member of the church at Sardis? Remember what you have received and heard and keep them. Now, it's a little easier for us. We're not in Sardis. In one sense, you say, well, we don't know what they were told and what they need to remember and to keep. But we know, don't we? My dear brethren, we do, don't we? we they needed to engage in the serious study of the word of God. That's a fundamental duty of the Christian life. We need to open our Bibles every day, search the scriptures every day. We need to be prayerfully asking God, what do you have for me today? What do you want me to do, Lord? Here's your word. It contains your will. What do you want me to do? The serious study of the word of God is a duty. Even, even if you're not very advanced as a Christian, Peter tells the people to whom he writes, and by the way, it was the region of Asia Minor which Peter wrote to when he said, long for the pure milk of the word that you may grow thereby. Even babies need the word of God. Even spiritual infants need the word of God. They need prayer. They need to pray. It's a fundamental duty. Peter says, Paul says, I want the men to pray in every place. Jesus tells us that we ought to pray and not faint. We need to worship God, it's a fundamental duty. Every Christian ought to know that we should be worshiping God. And there is the practice of godliness. It is a practice of godliness. It is an effort, an effort to learn how better to please God by holiness. Paul puts it this way, having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves of all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. And so we ought to be working on holiness. We ought to be engaged in relative duties. 
That's a Puritan, by the way, a Puritan phrase, relative duties. What did they mean? They mean the duties of husbands to wives, wives to their husbands, parents to their children, children to their parents. Those are relative duties, and they are fundamental duties to all Christians. There is the supporting and spreading of the gospel. That's a fundamental Christian duty for a church. That's what Christ has delivered the church to do. Make disciples of all the nations, teaching them. So, it's not hard. And, of course, my little list here is just very basic, very rudimentary. But my point is this, brethren. We, like Sardis, know what God wants us to do. I'm not saying we're Sardis at City View Baptist Church. Is that what I'm saying? I'm just trying to make the Word of God come alive to our hearts and minds so that we understand. So Jesus tells these people at Sardis, you're not alert. You're not doing what you should be doing. Remember what you've been taught. Remember what you have heard. Keep it. Hold on to it. Practice it. Be awake to the fact that you ought to be serving God every day in the ways in which he opens it for you. But Jesus, you see, I've left out an element of what Jesus tells them to do. Here's another element. The incomplete works are what the Bible, what the, the Puritans called, sins of omission. There are two ways you can sin against God, right? Many ways, but two especially. You can sin by doing what God says not to do. God says don't steal. If you steal, you're sinning. Obvious, duh. But there's another way you can sin, by not doing what God requires of you. And when you don't do what God tells you to do, you are committing a sin of omission. You're leaving out what God says to do. And that's just as serious as committing murder, committing adultery, Bearing false witness and all the rest of the commandments. And so Jesus says, repent. Repent. Change your mind. Don't think about these things. What, what have they been thinking? They've been thinking, well, these things are unimportant. Or we do enough. They need to repent of that. That's a sinful attitude. And Jesus says, so repent. Confess it as the sin. Laziness is a sin. Incomplete duty is a sin. So he tells them, confess it, forsake it. Ask God for forgiveness and cleansing and reformation. Confess the distracting laziness that you feel is a sin. Seek grace to amend your ways. And as part of his correction, the Lord Jesus warns them what will happen if they don't obey. And this, you might say, well, this is awful. It, 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 it's awful. What Jesus says next in correcting them. But it's very gracious as well. How would you feel if you went to the doctor? I'll use my cancer analogy. You went to the doctor and he ran a bunch of tests and he checked your PSA levels in your blood. And then you got a call from him during the week and said, everything is fine. Don't worry, you are in perfect health. And then you find out that the test said that your PSA levels were up. You had cancer, killing cancer. Is that a good doctor? It's an 
awful doctor who ought to lose his license and be thrown into jail. That's not Jesus. The Jesus whom, of whom we've sung more about Jesus, would I know, is the Jesus who tells you the truth. He tells you. And he tells you the danger. He tells you what it's to be done. The Lord Jesus warns them what will happen if they don't obey. He's going to come like a thief. Now I want you to think about that imagery for a moment. Sometimes I lie in my bed because I live in a dangerous neighborhood, Irvington, New Jersey. It's in the news almost every day. Somebody's getting robbed or killed in Irvington every day. My son doesn't like the fact that I live there, but I live there. Lived there for 21 years. If someone breaks in, what are they going to do? What are they going to leave me? Well, they may take my goods. I'll be, I'll be thanking God if all they do is take my money and take my valuables and take my wife's best earrings. I'll be thankful for that. Because many of those who break in as thieves in the night end up killing the occupants. It's danger. Jesus tells them what will happen. He's going to come like a thief. And you shouldn't be thinking, when Jesus comes as a thief, there'll be a couple of things missing. A couple of rewards taken away. No, no. There is extreme deprivation and death. When Jesus comes as a thief, and again, if you want to know more about Jesus, you need to think about Jesus this way. This is the way Jesus talks about himself to the people at Sardis. The Lord will not remove the little dead works of those who do. The Lord will remove, I'm sorry, the dead works, the few dead works of those who do not improve their opportunity. And this is to be feared. And this is a motive to obey. Grace, the fact that Jesus died for our sins and purchased us for God and has given us privileges and promise of eternal life are wonderful motivations. But you know what? There's something that many people don't think of. We need more than nice words and promises, even true nice words and promises. Pastor Chansky, my pastor, he says this way. He says, use every motive to holiness. Every motive. And these are motives to holiness. Jesus uses solemn ways to motivate. They are found in these words. But let me move on as time is passing. My next point is God's gracious, Christ's gracious recognition in 4A. This is a wonderful truth about the Lord Jesus Christ. He says... But you have a few people in Sardis who have not spoiled their garments. You have a few people in Sardis who have not spoiled their garments. It's remarkable. It's very encouraging. Christ notices his faithful people, even in a church which is about to die, even in a church which is wrecked with so much, with so much unfaithfulness, he sees the faithfulness of the few. That's what Jesus sees. And he extends them great promises. He offers them great promises. Notice what he says. And again, I can't spend a lot of time on this. You have a few people in Sardis who have not soiled their garments. They will walk with me in white for they are worthy. Think about that, what Jesus says. He says, these people of mine who are 
not soiling their garments by pride, by worldliness. We're going to have communion together and we're going to walk together in glory. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. And that's not something that we take to ourselves easily, is it, brethren? Somebody says, well, you're worthy of eternal life. I say, no, you are greatly mistaken. You just don't know what you're talking about. Not worthy. But Christ, when Christ says you are worthy, that counts. That counts. And Jesus says that to these people. And he offers them grace. He offers grace also, think about this, to those who are sinning. The sinning members do not need to write themselves off. We're going to see more of this in Revelation 3. As Christ does this again and again. He's always ready to call his people back from their sins. He's able to revive them. And they need to understand what they need to understand that these are issues of life and death. That is Christ's gracious recognition. I'll say more about it, but I will not. We move on to motivation to persevere. Motivation to persevere at the end of verse 4 and verse 5. They will walk with me in white, for they are worthy. That's motivation to persevere. Christ's eyes are not hidden from your good works, your valuable works, and he appreciates them and rewards them. He who overcomes, those are the people who are sinning. And Jesus is calling them back. He who overcomes will be clothed, thus clothed in white garments. And I will not erase his name from the book of life. And I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. They're going to partake of the riches of Christ's grace. He offers grace to those who will heed his exhortation. The sinning members of Sardis. He's ready to call them back. He's able to revive them. But again, they need to understand it's life and death. The threats are solemn, but the promises are very great. He promises them communion with himself. He promises them his approval. They will walk with me in white. This is final salvation. This is, there's the acknowledgement before God the Father and the holy angels. And there are promises of grace from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's very interesting to me. You might think, what will Christ offer to a lazy people who are too lazy to do his kingdom work? Well, he offers them promised blessings. That's what he does. He offers them blessing if they will repent. Well, that, those, are, those are the things which Christ does as motivations to persevere. He tells them that they will have all the same blessings of the people who have been faithful. It kind of reminds me of that parable that Jesus gave of the people in the, who came to work in the vineyard. Some people came early in the evening, came early and the master tells them they'll get so much money and each following hour he goes back in and hires more people and everybody gets the same rewards at last and that's what Christ does with his people he gives them rewards the same rewards the same blessings well I need to hasten on for the last verse the last verse is the call to attention. Christ's call to attention. One of the dangers of self-deception, if that ever lays hold of you, is to see the dangers and to assign them to others. Oh yeah, there are people who are not doing their job. 
have people who are not doing the things they ought to do. And Christ is going to judge them. And Christ is going to not reward them, but judge them. Uh, Paul writes this to the people at Rome. He talks about the people who judge those who do these things and do the same things that they judge in others. And he says, we know that the, that the judgment of God rightly falls upon such people. It's a danger when you are self-sufficient and you are proud. Oh, all the problems are somebody else. You know, it's like the guy who drives up uh, on, the, on the BQA and somebody cuts him off. And he's beeping his horn and he's shaking his fist. But meanwhile, two miles down the road, he's cutting somebody else off. Right? That's what, that's what happens. It's the danger of self-deception. Christ warns all his churches of this as well. He ends this letter with a call to attention. You know how it goes. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. You must not think of the way the mem you must not think of the way the, the members at Sardis thought. What you want to do is pray and seek to know, is it I, Lord? Have the attitude of the disciples in the upper room when Jesus said, one of you will betray me. What was their question? It was one of the best questions they asked. Is it I, Lord? Is it me? Am I this kind of a person? So we should seek to know if this is true, because Jesus tells his churches, all his churches, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So even if it's Trinity Baptist Church, which I highly love and esteem, they should be asking this question. Is it me? Are we proud and lazy? Are we neglecting our duties? And you know what I told you, I don't mind telling you again and again because it's true. I love City View Baptist Church. But we at City View Baptist Church, including me, including my wife, we ought to be asking these questions. Lord, is it me? Is it I? Am I the person to whom you would say, you have a name that you're alive, but you're dead? There's a verse which I conclude with. Paul to the Corinthians. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. Therefore, let him who thinks he stand take heed lest he fall. May God give us grace to hear the voice of Christ and to apply it to ourselves in the confidence that his grace will forgive us and cleanse us and revive us. Let's pray to that end. This evening, our Father and our God, we bow before you and we have heard your holy word. And you have given us, we trust, ears to hear. You have not shut our ears as the people of God, but you have opened our ears and you have spoken your word into our ears. We pray as we often do, open our hearts, our Father. Search us, try us, see if there be any wicked way in us. Do not let some bold sin like this let not rule over us. 
but forgive us our sins. We ask your mercy and your grace, and we give you praise and thanks for your faithful word. Through Jesus' name, amen.